Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing. With the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world, new novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 252, The Devil's Blaze. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. A podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Bert Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello there, and welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock's home... Wow. Let's try that again. <laughs> Hello there, and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. The first... <laughs> always, always, always happens. Okay. No, it doesn't. Does it doesn't always happen. <laughs> well, you know, it's just... Uh, it infrequently... It, it happens enough to form the basis for some of our outtakes episodes. Mm. All right, let's try this again. Hello and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, are you ablaze with wonder and fascination today? I'm always ablaze with wonder and fascination at this amazing world, and I'm wearing my blazer. It's uh, actually smoldering slightly uh, down around the edges, which is exactly how I like it on these chilly autumn days. You know, I wonder if blazers should be made from asbestos. No, that would defeat the purpose. <laughs> Flame-retardant blazer. It's, it's an oxymoron. No, hmm. no, you don't want that. You really want, you know, a little smoke, a little uh, atmosphere with your blazer. A little song, a little dance. Yeah, a little seltzer. A little seltzer. Yeah. <laughs> All of that, yeah. Well, get your gasogenes out, folks, and uh, charge up your tumblers, because we are in for a wonderful ride. Um, no whiskey is actually imbibed during this episode, but it does have a Scottish connection, as we have a conversation with author Bob Harris on his latest book, The Devil's Blaze. Fascinating man and a fascinating book. The show notes that you can find are available at ihose.co slash ihose252. 
all lowercase. That'll take you directly to our website, IHearOfSherlock.com. You can comment on the episode there, or of course, you can always send us an email. You can find us at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. Rate and review our show on uh, Apple Podcasts. That would be a help. But also let us know uh, what you're thinking, uh, what, whether we've hit the mark, whether we're missing something. We always like hearing from our seven listeners. And, of course, we are uh, rapidly uh, approaching the end of the year. And uh, we're going to be doing a special episode that uh, I think everyone should um should, should pay attention to because, well, 2023 is an interesting year. It is one in which uh, all of the Sherlock Holmes shorts, well, all of the Sherlock Holmes stories, period, the complete Sherlock Holmes, will finally be in public domain in the United States. Uh, I think there are, what, four remaining stories, Bert, from uh, the case book? Oh, I guess so. I don't know. I've lost track of that. Yeah, they, they, they haven't been in public domain. They've been rolling in year by year. But, of course, I think 1927, uh, that was when the final one was published, or the, these final four were published. And, uh, therefore, 2023, with the 95-year, or 75 years plus 20, I, I forget exactly how it goes. But... Carry the three. It's, it's 75 years plus 20. Carry the three. I was told there would be no math. Uh, <laughs> and then how much change do you have in your pocket? <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, okay, in the three gables had 16 pence in his pocket. And so you have to subtract that from the copyright limitation. <laughs> and this is why he threw Moriarty over the fall. <laughs> math. Right. We just can't That's do with math. Well, anyway, we're going to be doing a very special uh, video episode i think it'll be a live episode uh, so stay tuned for that we we'll want to make sure that you get a chance to participate uh we see some of the people that we will be interviewing and uh, we'll have a chance to talk about sherlock holmes in the public domain what it means to each of us so stay tuned for that toward the end of december of 2022 bob harris was born in dundee scotland he grew up making comics and games and writing stories to the detriment of his social skills. In his teens, he was a voracious reader of science fiction and of the new genre called heroic fantasy. He attended St. Andrews University because, well, it had a fine reputation for classics and it was close enough to Dundee for him to take his laundry home on weekends. Bob married American novelist Debbie Turner, and shortly thereafter, he designed the fantasy board game Talisman and signed a deal with Games Workshop to have it published. The Harrises became friends with author Jane Yolen, who began writing the Young Heroes series of books with Bob. And then Bob's first solo novel, Leonardo and the Death Machine, was published in 2005 by HarperCollins. Bob's also written Will Shakespeare and the Pirate's Fire, The World Goes Loki Trilogy, The 31 Kings, Richard Hannay Returns, and three books in the Artie Conan Doyle Mysteries series. His first Sherlock Holmes novel, set in 1942, was A Study in Crimson. And now he's back with The Devil's Blaze. And when he isn't writing, Bob likes to listen to blues and jazz, 
read, play board games, watch Fred Astaire movies, and follow the NFL. He still dabbles in game design, so watch out. He plays squash regularly, tennis irregularly, and really should get back to fencing. He can play two tunes on the harmonica. One is Oh Susanna, and the other isn't. Bob Harris, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Hello. Well, I'm glad to be here at last. Well, uh, your your uh, journey is fascinating. This is your second book, and we'll talk about kind of the cadence of each of them. But before we do that, why don't you fill us in on how you first remember encountering Sherlock Holmes? Ah, well, uh, probably as I was growing up, I was seeing the Basil Rathbone films on TV. Um, I like that he was exactly like Basil Rathbone, that Dr. Watson was lovable, but a bit of a bumbler, that um, Inspector Lestrade was nothing like he turns out to be in, in the Conan Doyle story. He's a rat-faced little man. He's actually this big sort of semi-cockney chap in a Macintosh and a bowler hat. So uh, that, that's the impression I for Sherlock Holmes from boyhood. Um, and then on television, there was uh, uh, Peter Cushing played him on BBC for a while. Um, so uh, I was in my maybe somewhere in my mid to late teens when I bought, got out the library. I finally thought I'd try and read some of the stories. So I uh, I looked through this big collection of them all, and I thought the red-headed league looked intriguing. I thought I assumed that would be an organisation of ginger-haired people out to take over the world or something, um, which of course it isn't. But it's actually one of the one of the most fun stories in the whole thing. So from there, uh, I went on, you know, to, to read Sherlock Holmes, and over the years, along with also many other things, um, until by a strange, devious, unplanned route, I've ended up writing about Sherlock Holmes. Um, so that, that's that's the basic connection through through all that. No, oh, no. What was the strange, devious, unplanned route? Ah, well. <laughs> Uh, well, my first, I, I began, I, my wife was an author before me. She was writing fancy adventure novels. And through her, I got to know Jane Yolen, who's a very important writer in America. And we became very good friends. And she found out I was helping my wife out by kind of roughing out some chapters of her books. And she said, you, you should be writing stuff too. So she got me to write some short stories that got published. And then she said, we write some novels together. So we wrote 18 novels uh, together, published in America. There was a, a quartet of Scottish history-based novels and four called Young Heroes, about uh, the early days of famous Greek heroes. Uh, and following on from this, I thought, well, I, I need to look for a, a solo book for me to, to write. Uh, now, ignoring the ones that I tried and nobody wanted, um, I wrote one called Leonardo and the Death Machine. Not my I didn't like the title very much, but that's what the publishers made it. Um, because that would be like the historical Scottish books we'd done it would be an adventure story like the Greek heroes books we've done. It would have the pace of an adventure story. So I, I wrote this one, and that, that was quite successful. It was published in many countries. Uh, it was a follow-up about, about um, called Will Shakespeare and the Pirate's Fire. So um, the kind of pattern there is taking a famous historical person and giving them a fictional adventure against a historical background, but the details of their life would be accurate and the world they live in. Just this, the adventure itself would be just me making up. So after writing those two, and they were both published, uh, I was looking to see about a, a third one. Who, who, what else could I write? So um, I, I thought of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Let's go for Arthur Conan Doyle when he's a teenager. Um, because as with the Leonardo, you're in a world of you know political intrigue in Florence and you use art and such like. And then um, writing about the young teenage Will Shakespeare, of course, he gets 
that there's all kinds of political intrigue going on in England at that time. Plus, he, he finds himself in the world of theatre. So I thought the young, your third book in this what, imaginary series would be about the young Arthur Conan Doyle, who would have a, a fictional Sherlock Holmes-esque adventure in Victoria, Edinburgh during his boyhood. And the idea was that would inspire him to uh, create the character of Sherlock Holmes in the future and write those stories. You know, all three of these books would be, would be about the, the, the young chap taking these first steps to become the man who will become famous and legendary in the future. So I, my wife and I, we, we, we worked away at the outline for uh, this, the Gravediggers Club, which was going to be the first of the young actor Conan Doyle books. And got nowhere with that for a while. Um, but eventually I had another series of books, some comic Norse god adventures, published by a Scottish publisher, um, Flores Books, under Kelpie's imprint. And I was working on that. They, they'd had the, the Gravediggers Club outlined for quite some time. This is the young Arthur Conan Doyle thing. And then suddenly they, they came to me and said, oh, we've been looking this over. We'd like to do this. We'd like it to be a series. So um, I had to make him a bit younger because it, it was kind of middle grade book. So rather than being 14, he becomes 12. So that involved a bit of jigging. But uh, I got to do that. So I was writing these uh, young Arthur Conan Doyle stories um, set in Victoria, Edinburgh. Um, that's uh, The Gravediggers Club, The Vanishing Dragon and The Scarlet Phantom. And I was going around schools pretending to be dressing up as Sherlock Holmes and putting little Sherlock Holmes plays with the kids there to get them into the whole thing. And uh, so it did cross my mind that, that, you know, well, I'm creating these mysteries for these middle grade novels, which I think are really good enough for Sherlock Holmes to tackle. They're actually really, really good mystery with lots of atmosphere. Um, and of course, it crossed my mind about writing a Sherlock Holmes novel. But as you probably would know, um, there are hundreds of Sherlock Holmes pastiches out there. I mean, I just go on the Kindle and there's like screeds of them turning up. And I thought, well... If I write a Sherlock Holmes novel, no matter how good it is, nobody's going to care. It'll just disappear. Um, so I was already writing something else. I, I had now made the move into writing books for grown-ups. Uh, I had revived um, Richard Haney, the he hero um, created by John Buchan in his novel The 39 Steps, which has been famously filmed a number of times. Um, and he wrote a number of novels about his action hero. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah. And uh, so I, I revived this character, Richard Haney, I carried him on into World War II uh, after the point where Buchan himself, the author, had died and so obviously couldn't write anymore. I, I continued to venture into that. So I was already writing, you know, kind of period adventures. Uh, I'd written a kind of homage to Conan Doyle in my, my younger stories. Um, but as I say, I, the notion of being a Sherlock Holmes story, unless it was something different, unless it brought something new to the game, I couldn't do that. I just suddenly one day spotted my box set of uh, DVDs of the Basil Rathbone films. And I... We, as a family, we've loved these films for years. And in my childhood, watching them in my childhood days, I didn't really make the differentiation between the first couple, which are the Victorian ones, and the ones that are really shifted into World War II by Universal Pictures. But now as a grown-up, where I'm more, more discerning, um, I was reflecting on that and thinking how, how well they'd done that. It, it didn't feel jarring at all that Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were now fighting Nazi spies in wartime London. And I looked at this, this set of DVDs and I thought, well, that works really well as a film. Has nobody ever thought to, to do this as a novel, to take that same idea, to, to, to be inspired by those films to write Sherlock Holmes in 1942 in wartime London? And when I thought of that, I, I did a, a very brief description of it. The, the, the plot I described is what is the second novel, The Devil's Blaze, with a spontaneous human combustion and him being forced to cooperate with uh, Professor Moriarty. I did a kind of one-paragraph description of this on a page with a photograph of... Uh, Rathbone and Bruce as uh, Holmes and Watson 
and I went to see my editor in, uh, in uh, Edinburgh and uh, I, I showed her this and she, she said, do this next and do three of them because I was writing something else at the time. But I ended up writing that instead. So I, I came to the point I was thinking, oh, actually, maybe I, I should write a Sherlock Holmes novel now. It seemed like the right point. Uh, I had the idea of the Jack the Ripper story of somebody imitating the crimes of Jack the Ripper in, in the London blackout. That seemed to be really good. And the whole, all the ideas for that came to me very quickly. So we ended up doing that. And then for the second book, went back to this other one. So uh, it, it just sort of happened. I, I, it wasn't a long-term plan anywhere that we do this. Um, but it, it just seemed very right. And the... Uh, it seems to have worked well, and people are really enjoying the, the books. Uh, it, nobody's written to say, this is ludicrous, having Sherlock Holmes in World War II. No. no. Uh, in a sense, I think the fact that the Conan Doyle estate actually signed an agreement with Universal Pictures to make these films, and they agreed, and they were very enthusiastic about it, it kind of makes it official in a way that, that it has a seal of approval of the Conan Doyle family back in 1942 when they set all this up. So I thought, well, yeah, I, I'm doing a, an alternate version of Sherlock Holmes, but it, it has the official seal of approval and um, if, it, if it stays true to Conan Doyle within that slightly different time frame I think it's going to be something well worth doing yeah and I, you know it's interesting to me Bob because um, you know when we think about the Rathbone Bruce films those iconic uh, characterizations of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson from the 1940s um, all but the first two were contemporary. That is, they set Sherlock Holmes in the world of the 1940s. And it's it's fascinating that we still look back to Basil Rathbone as one of the all-time great portrayers of Sherlock Holmes when that whole series wasn't even set in Victorian England. And it, it just really worked for the time. And I think the fact that you can take a concept and an image of Rathbone and Bruce to your publisher, and they say, "Yes, I get it immediately." I mean, that just uh, that 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 indicates how universally recognized Rathbone is in his portrayal, and how loved the character of Sherlock Holmes is. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, it, moving him into the nineteen forties wouldn't have worked except that Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce are, are so perfect in those parts. People already love them in those roles and identified them with the characters so strongly you could move them in time and it was, it was fine. So also when I'm writing it, I, I have them in mind, um, especially Basil Rathbone, who I think brings a tremendous physical and intellectual vigour to the part. Um, and just, you know, it's imprinted in people's minds of, of uh, you know, to me, he's the best Sherlock Holmes. I think to any other Sherlock Holmes fan, he's at worst one of the best, you know, um, even if not the best. But uh, And I think that, that the, the fact that portrayal is so strong, it really um, energises uh, my stories and, and how I portray the characters as well. Oh, I think that's I think that's very true. And in fact, one of the lovely one of the many lovely things you do in this book, which is called The Devil's Blaze, you know, Sherlock Holmes, 1943, is that you capture um, his character on the page. You know, he had a very he had a unique way of of suggesting boredom, of suggesting uh, ennui, um, and you capture in his dialogue, you know, it's sort of the voice of Rathbone. It's really lovely. But, but one of the things that Sherlockians who hear about this may immediately think is, how is 
Robert Harris going to handle Watson? Because, you know, Nigel Bruce was such a comic character. So, and, and he's not a comic character at all in, in your book. So what was your thinking about Watson? Yeah, well, <laughs> there is a great controversy about Nigel Bruce. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not all the films where he, he behaves in a buffoonish way. And I think, I think one of the things to remember about these films, people tend to discount, is they're made during the war. They're made during a very depressing time. You know, people are being bombed, they're losing relatives in the fighting. Um, and these films, these, these Sherlock Holmes films, have got murders and sabotage and spies in them. So I think the producers wanted to put a bit of lightness into it. They wanted to have points in the film. People could actually have something to laugh at. But they're not laughing at Sherlock Holmes. Obviously, you can't make people laugh at Sherlock Holmes. So Dr. Watson... Um, from being a little, being slower than Sherlock Holmes in original stories, it becomes completely at sea sometimes um, in this. And so Nigel Bruce plays it with a tremendous warmth. I mean, we don't doubt his, his courage and his loyalty to Sherlock Holmes or his humanity. We do doubt his brains a little bit sometimes. But that's, I think that's done for the, a deliberate effect to, to lighten the films, which sometimes are, are very dark. I mean, one of them, in Green, starts off with a series of young women being murdered and having a finger cut off. You know, these, these are not like light-hearted films. So that, that comedic aspect, I think, is very much of the time and probably very necessary at the time. I think the positive qualities that uh, Nigel was brought to it, that kind of humanity and warmth, I want people love him in the part. And I think we should forgive um, <laughs> some of the silliness, but because of that. And also because, as I've seen observed elsewhere, until Nigel Bruce came along, Dr. Watson was barely a character at all. He was like a window we looked through to see Sherlock Holmes. Um, once they created this dynamic with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, it's, it's impossible to imagine Sherlock Holmes operating without Dr. Watson. You know, the, the, that, that companionship um, is very much comes out of those films. And, um, and having watched a lot of other Sherlock Holmes films, it's, uh, there, there's some where people are play more buffoonishly than, than Nigel Bruce. Others where, of course, it's a, it's a very different kind of Watson. Um, and so, yes, obviously from the beginning, I was not going to play Watson for laughs. Um, I do all the positive aspects. And also, I would have to say that uh, my favourite Watson is Edward Hardwick, who is the second Watson to mm. Jeremy Brett, Sherlock Holmes. Um, to me, he, he's an absolutely perfect Watson. He's intelligent, he's brave, he's humane. I, I, I think he's exactly what I think Watson should be. Um, but once again, I think... Every Watson uh, since Nigel Bruce owes him a, a debt for making Watson an actual character that people care about and insist must be in the Sherlock Holmes stories. We're going to pause here a moment for a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, when's the last time you visited MX Publishing's website? Because I can guarantee you that there are a ton of new books that you haven't seen yet. Every week, you can count on Thank Holmes It's Friday with another load of publications, whether it's hard copies, ebooks, or audiobooks. And there are four free audiobooks that await in a recent entry, including Nico Vaughn's The Adventure of the Wordy Companion, an A to Z guide to Sherlockian phraseology. It's a handy guide to those wordy words and references found within the pages of the canon. Also available are Kate Workman's Sherlock Holmes novel Rendezvous at the Populaire, where we find Holmes investigating the ghost at the Opera Populaire. And in Sherlock Holmes in the Nautilus Adventure, Joseph Speck takes us on an underwater journey 
with Holmes and Watson as they attempt to find and rescue a famous author who's been kidnapped. And then there's Sherlock Holmes and the Flying Scotsman by John Worth, a complex international scenario of espionage and intrigue and assassination. All of these audiobooks are available for free from MX Publishing. Of course, if you'd prefer electronic or hard copies, those are available as well. Just go to mxpublishing.com and place your order today. Well, you know, your explanation about uh, Watson is, I think, dead right. You know, Nigel Bruce was such a lovable Watson, and it was an important balancing point for those films. And you've cast um, beautifully. You know, this is, uh, we should tell our listeners, too, without giving away any spoilers, that this book, The Devil's Blaze, um, opens in Baker Street, as you would expect it to open. And there's a mystery which happily, you know, Sherlock Holmes in very imaginatively and very quickly um, sorts out. And then you're on to the real, the real story here. And much like the Universal Films, you will quickly meet your favorite family of stock characters. And some years ago, we had on our show, I'm sure we'll have this in the show notes, Michael Hoey, Dennis Hoey's son, who had uh, put together a book, uh, I think called Sherlock Holmes, The Fabulous Faces. Was that it? Um, But it was uh, sort of a review of... Uh, you know the cast of uh, characters, the the stock company that populated those those Universal films. But you see them all here. You know, you see Montague Love, and you can imagine Henry Danielle and and uh, the whole the whole cast here. And you will eventually meet. You know, as you said earlier, I think Lionel Atwill is Professor Moriarty, and you'll also meet someone who never appeared in a Universal film. You'll meet Colonel Sebastian Moran. What was your thinking? about Moran? Who did, how did you cast, mentally cast Moran? Well, Moran, he, he, there's been many Moriarty's, but Moran doesn't always appear. He appears in a certain form in one of the uh, Universal Pictures, on, on the, the one set on a train, I think that, that's um, uh, Terror by Night. Um, but it's, it's not really very much of a Moran. My Moran is based on um, Patrick Allen, who played him in The Empty House Adventure with the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes. He, with his big moustache and his physicality, brought a sort of brutish menace to it. So when I was writing Moran, that, that was my Moran. He's somebody who's physically imposing, quite quite savage in a way. And it's, he's written that way, to be that way. And um, I think it's just a nice teaser to tell people that uh, early in the book, Sherlock Holmes and Moran have a fencing match, which, although it's meant to be just a sporting match, gets to be quite quite violent. Um, having, having fenced myself uh, some years back, uh, and having been warned but the, 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 my opponent and I were actually being much too rough on each other as we were thrusting these spoils at each other. Uh, I know you can, it can get quite dangerous. So, so yes, that, it's kind of nice in a way to... I mean, not every character you write do you think of an actor for, but in this case, it, it was very... Having Moran in mind for that, because it seemed a natural thing when you make um, Moriarty, given the position of authority he has in this book, by a, by a government who don't understand what they're dealing with here. Uh, the greatest villain of all time, uh, to have Moran be his head of security because he's a colonel seemed to just fall into place. I mean, once I started thinking about the, the plot for this, 
Um, everything seemed to just fall into place really nicely. What, what Moriarty would be doing in World War II, um, how Moran would be there as well. I, I think that, that really worked out. So, yeah, I, I, just say I, can, I, I can pick and choose from this history of Sherlock Holmes portrayals, um, characters that, or actors that I think embody the, the role best. Well, yeah, and I think you've done a lovely job, and it really does propel the story along. And, you know, it's fascinating because I think you're right. You have done something unique here. No one is really focused on this world, this this mix of um, sort of a cinema-created wartime, but the actual wartime, because of your love of history, you know, and without, again, without an Spoilers for our listeners. What will happen in the Devil's Blaze is that um, you know you will really take us into um, you know some of the archetypal scenes of intelligence work uh, in Britain during wartime. So so we we will visit sort of uh, a pseudonymous a pseudonymous um, <laughs> Bletchley Park in a way. Yeah. You know, you've got this sort of Bletchley kind of environment with a wonderful cast of scientific characters um, and Moriarty against this backdrop. So I was wondering, did you have to go back and do any more research uh, as you put this together? Well, obviously I, I researched Bletchley Park when I had the basic idea that Moriarty would, would be there. Um, and... Uh, uh, but what, one of the things that, that the films uh, don't do, they don't have historical characters, and you know they're made during the war, and the, and the events of the war are moving very quickly, so they don't tend to make reference to specific you know battles or incidents in the war, or specific individuals in the war. The people who turn up in the films are fictional, and I've followed that. So when I popped, so when I, I I was going to Bletchley Park, I thought, well, I, I want to have a, a bit of leeway here because I've introduced Moriarty as a fictional character. So I made all the experts who turn about my version of it, which I call Hunters would differentiate it, uh, are all fictional people. Uh, but they're the kind of people who would be at Bletchley Park. They, they, you know, they're, they're mathematicians, they're uh, people who do crossword experts, linguists, people who you'd bring together to crack enemy codes. Um, and so it was fascinating. I mean, at the, for many years after the war, Bletchley Park was still top secret. You couldn't talk about it. Uh, since then, it's become quite famous. There's been, you know, novels about it, films, um, lots of books. So I got some good books out about it to, to really immerse myself in it and what it was like, and uh, to create that that environment of the, this this place that's top secret, um, and come up with a cover story for it. Which uh, one of the nice things in Devil's Blaze is uh, in the first book, uh, Sorry in Crimson, there's not really much taken from uh, the films apart from the basic idea. Um, this this book, the Devil's Blaze. Uh, has a lot more homages to the, to the film, like the, the uh, Intelligent Inner Council appearing. They're all the same people as are in the films, uh, the first film at the Intelligent Inner Council. Um, there are scenes, that kind of echo scenes in some of the films. And um, in one of the films, I think that Sherlock Holmes faces death, uh, where Dr. Watson is working um, like a sanitarium for um, shell-shocked uh, officers in the war. Um, and so I thought, well, that's a, that's a good cover story for, for your, your intelligence centre. So that, in fact, Hunterswood is supposedly uh, a rest home for, for recuperating officers to go to. Where, in fact, the reality is it's where they're, they're intercepting German and Japanese transmissions and decoding them and passing the intelligence on. So that be able to use uh, something from one of the films as the cover story uh, just felt very, very nice to be using um, the films as material to, to, to in there to interweave that into this uh, version which kind of walks the line between you know the original canon of stories and this other setting um, 
because and building a certain continuity into it. But uh, out of both books, there's only one person, only one historical person actually appears, and that's the constable of the Tower of London, who has the the same name as the, the actual constable um, in 1943 in um, Devil's Blaze. But that's because I thought, well, why make up a fake name for him? He's, I'll, I'll let the guy have a name check. But um, uh, everybody else who appears in the book is fictional. Um, and obviously, there's the odd reference to Winston Churchill and such like. But I kind of want to make a point of, um, there is a, almost a sub-genre of Sherlock Holmes, where you have Sherlock Holmes meeting famous historical people. And that's what the book's all about. Uh, and I want to avoid doing that and just use the wartime setting and have lots of fictional characters, but have the, the, the wartime background be very authentic and have a big role to play in the story. Yeah, and I think the the reason that works, uh, Bob, is because you have constructed, uh, you know, a narrative, a plot, a setting that is entirely realistic. And, you know, it doesn't need to insert Sherlock Holmes into a historical narrative, but it places him in a historical construct that is very familiar, certainly to anyone who's seen uh, the films. And in some ways, I feel as if, a Study in Crimson, which was your first book, and we reviewed that on our website. We'll have a link to that review in our show notes. And now The Devil's Blaze. These could almost serve as uh, as as material for screenplays, for a revival of the Basil Rathbone series in some, uh, in some manner. Well, I hope that people at Netflix or uh, Paramount or anywhere else is listening to this and uh, looking at these books and thinking, yeah, that, that, that fellow's absolutely right. This stuff is solid gold. <laughs> uh, because I, uh, when I was doing my, my first kind of grown-up series uh, of Richard Haney, um, I was trying to kind of be true to John Buchan's original books, but at the same time give, give these stories uh, the kind of pace a modern audience would expect. You know, uh, Sometimes you know, older books are more leisurely, and that's a pleasure in itself. But I thought, I want the books I'm writing, the Honey books and these Sherlock Holmes books, to appeal to people who aren't even interested in reading the originals. Even if they don't want to go and have never seen a Basil Rathbone film uh, haven't, and aren't interested in doing it, they'd still enjoy the books. And similarly, my um, Richard Haney books, uh, even people who haven't read John Bucket, I want them to pick these up as good wartime thrillers. Um, I might be the second of those, those just now. Um, and, and and have that feel that you've been carried off on a really great adventure, not that somebody's painstakingly trying to recreate the exact way people would have written it, you know, way way back. Um, and so yeah, yeah, I, I think the, the two films, are, the two novels, are quite different in a sense. That the first one um, is the search for Crimson Jack, who's who's murdering women on the same dates as Jack the Ripper, and it's about trying to track down who this character is and why he's doing it. So it's very much. A kind of traditional kind of story in that way. And doing a second book, I wanted to make it a bit different. So that, as has been pointed out in some reviews, this is more of a thriller, and that's not a bad thing. Because um, you look at the... Obviously inspired to some extent by uh, Conan Doyle's The Final Problem, where Sherlock Holmes isn't really solving mysteries yet. He's just on the run, trying to avoid being murdered by a Moriarty and his men before his gang are all rounded up. Um, it's kind of, It's a chase story, really. Um, and so... It, Arthur Conan Doyle writing, I mean, the first collection of stories is called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. So they, they are adventure stories, um, not just detective stories as we think of them now, because uh, the differentiation between detective fiction and adventure stories and mysteries wasn't as strong back then when Conan Doyle was writing. You, you had a, a mixture of things. So I thought by going to the Devil's Blaze, there's certainly mysteries that Holmes has to, has to solve in it, but at the same time, it's moving. There's 
there's a, well, Holmes and Watson are a lot more physical danger in this book. <laughs> um, there's a lot more physical action and movement around locations. Uh, and I think it, I think from what people have told me, and I, I, I feel myself, that it's a story that carries you forward like a really good thriller does, uh, all the way up to a, a satisfying dramatic conclusion. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very fair. Now, we really at this point, you know, we've gone on in our conversation a bit and we have not really talked about the fundamental great question here, at least in my mind, which we really have to ask. We have to tell our listeners and we really have to ask you. First of all, The Devil's Blaze is about the mysterious, spontaneous human combustion of people. And one of the lovely things that you do in the book is that you introduce this, you know, in a in an absolutely perfectly plausible and interesting sort of way. But uh, along the way, I noted that you made the observation as the characters are talking about this, that that spontaneous human combustion dates back to as long ago as 1746, you write. Now, since you, are, you have such an uh, interest in history and you've done research, is it possible that spontaneous human combustion really goes back to 1746? Yes, that's where the records come from. Uh, and, um, <laughs> I, I think, as I mentioned in the novel as well, that Dickens used it in um, Bleak House. His, his, that villainous character just catches fire. And it's burnt to death. Um, uh, now, so yeah, these things happen. Now, uh, luckily, we have our lady scientist, um, Dr. McCready, in the book, who's able to take a very shrewd look at this and say, no, there's nothing supernatural happening here. Just now and again, a strange set of circumstances will come about that somebody will be burnt in this particular way um, without falling directly into a fire or something. And of course, the, the thing about it was, I thought, Sherlock Holmes, what? Well, when the government going to call Sherlock Holmes in for a case, not just some ordinary little country house murder. So, but if, if members of the government and the military are bursting into flame in the street, um, I think they would definitely run to Sherlock Holmes and ask him to sort it out for them. So it was a crime big enough uh, for that. Um, and so the, the, the spontaneous human combustion thing is like, well, it's something people have heard about, but does it happen? Do people just burst into flame for no reason because there's some chemical reaction going on inside them? Uh, well, as I, as is Dr. McCready in the book, um, I'm, I'm sceptical about that. But uh, clearly, in this novel, something is going on. This isn't just an accident. There's some reason these people are being targeted and um, how it is. So I think it makes a very um, dramatic uh, case for, for Holmes to get into. You know, have, having tackled Jack the Ripper kind of in the first book, he, you know, they've got this case launched. And then, being with Moriarty, you, know, they, you have to keep the stakes fairly high. Um, so, yeah, I... I, I, I so there's a lot of controversy. There's lots of books about spontaneous human combustion who will tell you that it's just occasionally people just randomly burst into flames. But mm, I think the cooler heads say the evidence is there's usually an explanation for it. Um, and that's all covered in the book there. Uh, but it's a, fa it's a fascinating topic. Anything that, that touches on supernatural. And of course, with Sherlock Holmes, um, we get the, 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 there's a story called The Last Vampire. There's, there's a, you know, The Hound of the Baskervilles. It's kind of Scooby Dooish in a way. You know uh, that, that in fact there won't be a real ghost, a real a real hellhound, but that that atmosphere that there's something uncanny going on, is certainly part of the uh, the canon, and it's played off in, in the, the films as well. Uh, you'll you'll know the the Scarlet Claw is one of the most enjoyable films for some 
glowing phantom creature in some Canadian march is going around clawing people to death. Uh, once again, you're playing on that sense that something uncanny is happening, even though you know it will be explained in the end. So, yeah, the human combustion thing was a nice uh, way of bringing that into the story. Is there something really bizarre going on here? Um, or can we find an explanation for it? Yeah, and I, I think this this notion of uh, supernatural. I mean, it's it is in itself a natural topic for storytellers. You know, we've we've had uh, you know instances of supernatural beings or supernatural visions. Uh, you know, that go way back in folk tales, and certainly Conan Doyle picked up on that as you know as you state with uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles and with other stories. And of course, Holmes is there to remind us that. The agency remains flat-footed upon the ground. No ghosts need apply. So yes. <laughs> it's uh, it, it it then becomes some sort of a, a mental game to kind of figure out. Well, if we know supernatural things aren't based in fact or aren't based in the physical world, then how is Sherlock Holmes going to go and figure this out? I think that's a that's part of the wonder of this uh, this journey that you take us on, Bob. So, um. You 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 looked at uh, Crimson Jack in a study in Crimson. We're here with Moriarty in uh, the Devil's Blaze. I sense a progression. I sense there's there's something else brewing in you, Bob, for <laughs> a third novel in this series. W- would I be right in that assumption? Yes, I have a third novel um, at the plotting stage um, because I, having had Jack the Ripper and Moriarty basically as opponents, what do you do in the, the third one? Well. Uh, I have, while doing this, discovered um, the great um, Arsène Lupin novels. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of the French author offhand. But as you probably know, um, Arsène Lupin is this sort of a master of disguise, French, uncatchable French master master thief. And although he's a criminal, he's kind of the good guy of the stories, he's the hero of the stories. And in the first collection of these stories, which I, I recommend to anyone to read, they, 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 they're kind of a mosaic of short stories that form a, a whole a whole meta-tale. Um, and in the very last story, Sherlock Holmes appears to try to, to frustrate Arsène Lupin. Um, and then there's a second book, which is all about Sherlock Holmes versus Arsène Lupin. Although by that time, Conan Doyle's lawyers have stepped in and said, you can't call this guy Sherlock Holmes, you don't want him. So he becomes Hemlock Sholmes or something. And it's not quite as satisfying because the Holmes and Watson are kind of um, spoofed a bit in that. But the, the, but the thing, there is this pre-existing rivalry, which is not written by Conan Doyle, but somebody else, between this French master thief whom nobody can catch and Sherlock Holmes, which carries on to the Arsene Lupin stories, right to the third one, which is the, the Hollow Needle, which is very, very good. So um, there were a couple of things I wanted to do with the third book. One was um, to do something a bit like Dashiell Hammett does in the Dane Curse, when you've got like three or four mysteries, separate mysteries uh, in the book. You know, each you go through them each in turn, but they're all part of meta mystery. They're all tied up in some larger one. I want to do something like that. So I, I, I have this third book will have three kind of sections to it. The first one being a kind of English country house, well, set in English countryside, a series of mysterious murders, and beside each body is a smashed pocket watch, um, and to to. to find out what's going on and to stop any further murders, um, Sherlock Holmes must track down the notorious French thief um, Etienne Garou. I've you know, given him, once again, fiction, made my own version of him, but he's inspired by Arsène Lupin. And, he, and so Etienne Garou is the only criminal ever to have evaded Sherlock Holmes twice. Um, and Holmes has never caught him. But now um, he needs to find him. He has some vital information to stop something really dreadful happening. And so uh, Holmes goes to 
newly liberated Paris. Paris had like been liberated like a couple of days before. And that's for me. That's a great setting uh, for Sherlock Holmes to go into. There's so much going on there. There's you know America and other Allied troops under place. People are having parties to celebrate the fact that the Nazis have been thrown out. Um, and he has to kind of find this French master thief, whom he's assumed correctly would be due to the skills as part of the resistance um, during during the war. Uh, and so it, it just seems like a really great way to how use the war uh, background in an interesting way, and also to to, to tie into another um, great character from that period, who's already a rival of Sherlock Holmes, um, and bring them together in this story. So uh, so we now have after. Jack the Ripper and Moriarty, we now have Etienne Guru, a.k.a. Arsène Lupin, the French master thief who Holmes has never managed to capture. And will he in this book? Well, I haven't decided yet. I'm still plotting it. But I love the idea of it, of having a, a kind of gallant, admirable villain in this one. Um, he's not really the main villain of the story, but he, he, he and Holmes have this rivalry going back quite a long way. And so that's what's coming um, in the future. I hope uh, people will be looking forward to that. And once again, it's an idea to do something a, a bit different. See what you know. See, I'm not doing another kind of serial killer mystery. I'm not going to do another, you know, one like the second book. Um, it's going to have like a series of mysteries in it that all culminate in one overarching uh, tale. So I hope people are intrigued by that. I look forward to it, and because um, I'm going to be working very hard to write it soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, the pressure's on now that you've stated it publicly. Well, um, yeah, well, the, sounds... the bar is so high now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, hey, I am all for uh, more gentlemen criminals out there. We we need more upstanding criminals in uh, yeah, in the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to improve the quality of criminals. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sherlock Holmes might argue otherwise. Well, uh, the book is The Devil's Blaze by Robert J. Harris. It's available from Pegasus Crime, uh, found wherever books are sold. And uh, Bob, thank you so much for sharing your story with us here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. It's been great. I mean, I'm glad there's setups like yours to spread the word of Sherlock Holmes. You know, we love keeping Sherlock Holmes important in people's minds is, is a great thing. I would recommend people because I've got a couple of articles going to be in the next issue, the Sherlock Holmes magazine, but for Adrian Brady, uh, I get that. I've, I've subscribed to it. I get it every month. And um, I have two articles in the next, in the next issue. So, <laughs> um, yes, go online and find it and subscribe and, and support the Sherlock Holmes magazine. Uh, it's full of every aspect of Sherlock Holmes you can imagine. Um, there, I've done, a, I've done a plug for something that I don't even make any money out of. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. No, we love Adrian and we love the magazine. Yeah, I... I I, originally, he, he, he'd been sent a copy of um, Study in Crimson, the UK edition. I'd recommend him to send that to the magazine. I hadn't read the magazine at that point. I just said, send it to this magazine. And having got the book, he, he emailed me and said, could you write an article about, about this? So I was a Rathbone and this. Book. I said, oh, you're great. So, so I did that. And uh, he did a lovely job of, of illustrating it and everything. So I, I started to get the magazine regularly. And, and now I'm hooked. I, I, I couldn't do without it. I've got to get my fix of Sherlock Holmes magazine. And the fact I can now, I got the of thinking of articles to do, um, for it. it, it makes it even more fun for me. So there's one about my article in Dolmetries I've spoken of already, um, about how they came to be and what's involved in those, and one called um, uh, the, the Case of the Curious Casting, which looks at uh, a trio of Sherlock Holmes TV movies um, in, which feature uh, uh, Edward Woodward and Roger Moore and William Shatner. And so I, I take a light-hearted look at those. And, and what are the consequences of casting these rather unlikely people in, in the roles they're in? 
Um, I will say, Sherlock, the first two uh, play Sherlock Holmes in these films, William Shatner doesn't, but he plays a very prominent role in uh, the 19... It's, a, it's the Stuart Granger, uh, yeah, yeah. Hound of the Baskervilles, um, which I, I like Stuart Granger, and um, Shatner's presence in it just, just it just makes it really fascinating. So, um, yeah, so there's, an article, there's an article about all of that, about you know the curiosity of Roger Moore playing Sherlock Holmes, which is extremely odd. Uh, but they're all they're all fun films, and so uh, I'm glad to have a chance to just share my enthusiasm for those things in the magazine. You know, it's like as you guys with your podcasts are doing. You know, there's all kinds of different aspects of Sherlock Holmes that we can enthuse about. You know, um, and it's nice to, be able to share them with people and maybe point them towards things, films they've not seen, books they've not read. You know, things like that that they might actually want to dip into and give a try. You know, we've remarked in the past about how distinctive it is for Sherlock Holmes and that for so much, well, for all, really, of the time that Sherlock Holmes has walked the earth, he's always been contemporary. And it wasn't until 1939 in the two 20th century Fox films that they first put him back in the Victorian era. But he was always contemporary. And of course, we've had elementary and we've had the Benedict Cumberbatch BBC series. But how interesting that Bob has gone back to the 1940s and that wonderful period and and how how fascinating to see it all work with those familiar actors and those familiar voices in the story. But it was interesting when he mentioned you know, we were talking about, gee, maybe there could be another film, another, you know, a new film in the Universal series. How would you like to be the casting director who wanted to hire somebody to play Basil Rathbone playing Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. That That is really fascinating to uh, to imagine. And, um, you know, when, when you remarked there about um, the uh, 20th Century Fox um, initial Hound of the Baskervilles and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the first two films of the Rathbone-Bruce collaboration, um, they they were Sherlock Holmes in the right time, but then they quickly retreated to contemporary, and we didn't see Sherlock Holmes set in Victorian England again, I think, until the late 1950s or so. Um, well, it's Cushing, wasn't it? Cushing, who fifty nine, the Hound of the Baskervilles, yeah. um, and then there may have been some others in there, but nothing really prominent. Uh, so it's fascinating, and and to my knowledge, and I, I completely admit that I may be wrong here because my uh, my mental catalog of pastiches is not complete. <laughs> I I can't think of another pastiche or series of pastiches that places Sherlock Holmes specifically in the 1940s. Well, or any time, you know, not the 1920s or the 1930s and certainly not the 1960s. You know, there've been TV things where he pops up in the 1970s and 80s, but, but yeah, you know. this, it's, it's such an interesting, uh, it's such an interesting concept. And it reminds me too, of when we spoke to, Oh gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna forget his name. We had we had an episode where we talked about the new radio adventures of Sherlock Holmes, if I'm not mistaken. Um, didn't we? That was the Lost, wasn't it? The Lost uh... the Lost Radio Scripts. Ian Dickerson. 
episode right. 136. Right. Yeah, where uh, we talked about, uh, you know, some of those Rathbone uh, adaptations. Um, but again, uh, thinking back to, you know, kind of recreating that mystique of the 1940s. Now, some uh, 80 years later, um, you know, we're all familiar with it. We're all familiar with that time frame. We're f- certainly familiar with the Rathbone uh, portrayal. Um, there might be something here. Well, yeah, I think so. You know, the, 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 the other touch point here that really, you know, is sort of fundamental to Sherlock Holmes is, is the whole notion of friendship. And the beautiful thing about the Universal series is that in real life, Rathbone and Bruce were friends. And you could see this, too, in the radio programs that Ralph Richardson and, um, uh, you know, what Richardson was Watson and who was Holmes? That uh, was, uh, 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 Gilgood. Well, right, John Gilgood. I mean, they were friends in real life. Yeah. But Rathbone and Bruce were, you know, good friends. And um, the the wonderful, warm, affectionate environment in their relationship was one of the characteristics of the Universal series. And this whole, you know, even Christopher Morley, obviously, you know, talked about the Holmes and Watson cases as a textbook in friendship. And so this is a continuation of that. But it, it's a tribute to the believable, warm, comforting. You know, the testament here is people go back to it. You know, Robert mentioned his box of DVDs. Every year or two, I screen all of those pictures again for myself just because it is such a lovely place to to return back to and to enjoy some of the scenes and to look at some of the performances. And it's uh, it's really enduring. It's a grand thing. Like Edgar Smith said, a romantic chamber of the heart. Hmm. Where it is always 1995. And, and where it's always 1942. <laughs> ah, yeah. Here, here. Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle have been topics of conversation in the world of literature ever since 1895. Wouldn't it be great to look through all those discussions, have all those articles, reviews, and commentary in one place on your bookshelf? Now you can, because the Wessex Press has published Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, and The Bookman. All the pastiches, parodies, letters all the columns and commentaries about Sherlock Holmes from 1895 to 1933 from the finest literary magazine of the 20th century, The Bookman, in one place, bringing back dozens of long-lost commentaries about the chronicles of Sherlock Holmes. Don't wait until this handsome volume is out of print. Get your copy of Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, and The Bookman right now at wessexpress.com. All right, it's time for everyone's favorite Sherlock Holmes quiz program. That's right, it's Canonical Couplet, where we bring you two lines of poetry, and you are forced to discern which Sherlock Holmes story we could possibly be referring to with this arcane and different reference. 
The last time we were around here, we gave you this clue. Another case where someone wants to pay more than it's worth, 5,000 pounds may be enough to travel round the earth. Okay, Bert. <laughs> here we go. Do you know which Sherlock Holmes story we're talking about here? Yes, yes, that is the case of Mrs. Neville St. Clair, who complains to Sherlock Holmes that her laundry delivery service has sent her a ruined undergarment. That's the case Watson called the van with the twisted slip. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, no, that's not it. And interestingly enough, I surveyed our fans for, well, our fan, for uh, suggestions for other sound effects here. Um, and I am on the hunt for uh, other uh, sound effects to uh, play after your invariably incorrect answers. Uh, mm. Sticking with the sad trombone this time. But no, no, that is not it. So uh, we turn to our friend Eric Deckers. And Eric takes a bit of a more, uh, more of a somber tone uh, in this case. Uh, he said, uh, this one was a little uncomfortable, but I have the answer. It's the adventure of the casual racism. Or, as it's better known, The Adventure of the Three Gables. And that is correct, Eric. The Three Gables is what we were looking for there. Not Holmes's best outing uh, in terms of uh, a boon to humanity. Uh, but, nevertheless, we do have humans who have responded here. So we need to haul out the big prize wheel and give it a spin. Goes around there, slowing down as it inevitably does, and landing on number 21. 21, that's a lucky one. And our winner this time around is Bob Hanmer. Hey, Bob, congratulations. We have a copy of Bonnie McBird's What Child Is This to send to you. So uh, stay tuned for that. Well, this time around, we have another book, of course, a copy of The Devil's Blaze by Bob Harris, ready to send out. And it goes to the lucky person who answers correctly and whose name is randomly chosen by answering this clue. A comedy, a tragedy, a knighthood was declined. We learn that Holmes has memorized a catalog of crime. If you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHeroSherlock.com. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win. Good luck. All right. Well, Bert, can you believe that we are winding our way toward the end of November now? Oh, it's sad. It's sad. You know, I like the holiday season to be extended, not compressed. Mm. Well, the good news is, if, if you are into that kind of thing, I did see uh, all sorts of indications of Christmas and, uh, and the holidays already being expressed in mid-October in uh, the retail <laughs> environments. So. Oh, sure. Well, we're well past that now. I mean, I'm thinking about <laughs> Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day, I think. 
Yeah, we got to get right past it. You know. Well, I'm already thinking of Christmas of 2025, so <laughs> I don't know where your head's at. Come on, man. <laughs> well, one fr- look properly baked, one fruitcake will last from A from lifetime. December 2022 <laughs> to 2025 easily. Sure, yeah. You know, it is my uh, estimation that there are only about 250 fruitcakes in the world, <laughs> and they just keep making the rounds. Uh, have you ever been victimized by a fruitcake? Actually, we have a great family fruitcake recipe that's really delicious. But no, I've maybe once over the years someone has given me a fruitcake. But I, actually, one year I made um, you know a traditional British plum pudding that was actually really pretty, really pretty good. Well, that's the thing. I, you know, a, a traditional one, if done well, can be very tasty. I, it's just I think these commercial variants. Uh, you know, with with the gummies inside of them, they've, they've just Ugh. they've ruined. Uh, you know, they've they've done for the fruitcake world what the Twinkie did for the baking world. <laughs> Which is what? What did, well, what did the Twinkie do what, to the baking world? <laughs> nothing good. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, um, you know, I mean, the notion that you can keep that that the, the shelf life for the Twinkie is you know whatever it is. Uh, you know, that's not what one would usually consider a fine baked good. Mm. Well, you know, you could take the other side of the, that argument and say that the uh, Twinkie made people appreciate, you know, the joy of fresh baked goods produced by your own hand well, at home with fresh ingredients. I like that. That's that's an apt comparison. Yeah. Mm. By comparison. Actually, yeah. I... Yeah, actually, I didn't make a uh, plum pudding. I made a traditional Christmas pudding, now that I think about it. Steamed, and uh, that was really delightful. In fact, now you've got me thinking about maybe I should do that again. All right. I'll tell you, one of the things that's hard to find in America is a proper pudding basin. And uh, I have one, you know, because it's supposed to... Well, anyway, we don't want to get into that. But it's a big deal, really, to find the right ceramic. If you want to do do that, to find the right ceramic vessel in which to make your Christmas pudding. It sounds like we may have an opportunity for merchandising here for a Sherlock Holmes <laughs> brand pudding basin. <laughs> Friends, is your pudding runny? Is your pudding too solid? Well, that's why you need the Sherlock Holmes brand pudding basin. Yes. Are you a poor, challenged American who doesn't understand what pudding means? Oh, well, cast away those fears and open up those fresh currants and golden raisins and come with us into the wonderful world of celebratory baking. Uh, Nicely done. <laughs> well, be sure not to eat the thimble. That's the uh, big. Uh, whatever you do, don't swallow the thimble. Uh, well, until we have figured out our pudding needs here at here of Sherlock <laughs> Everywhere, uh, we'll just leave you laughing, guffawing, or perhaps just shaking your head. Uh, in the meantime, this is or the... all three. Yeah. Uh, well, as we do. In the meantime, this is the slightly gelatinous Scott Monty. <laughs> and I'm the perfectly prepared but a little oversteamed Burt Wolder. <laughs> and together, we say... The, the games, games of foot. <laughs> the, the games, games of foot. foot.
Sherlock Holmes.